Welcome to BitCast on Podcast One, the video game podcast with the Axeman. Welcome back to the show. It's me again, the same jerk from the last episode and all the other 60-plus episodes before then. Hello. I am the new jerk from this episode. Yep, I, I picked up a new jerk. Would you like to introduce yourself? Alright. Uh, I am Philip. I am a friend of Alex's. I am known for my adoration of Octopath Traveler, which I believe, if I haven't been bamboozled, is what we're talking about today. Yes, we are talking about Octopath Traveler once again. The backstory here is that I think I actually played this game first, but then I got lazy with it. And then he just kind of came in, just got the game, and just powered through it. And I was just like, oh, suddenly I'm falling behind. I have to I have to pick up. i got to step right. it up like Sonic. Oh, yeah. Like two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> it took me a lot longer than two weeks to beat the game. It's pretty long, I can imagine. I didn't do a whole lot else during that time. Yeah, I was, I was really lazy with I got back from my convention trip in July. I... I I got the game digitally, and I didn't finish until September, mid-September. Yeah. I don't remember exactly what my time frame was, but it was like two, three weeks. That kind of necessitated me breaking down the discussion of the game into multiple episodes, because I didn't want to sit on them for too long. Fair enough. This would be like the fourth episode dedicated to the game. I think Smash Brothers Ultimate is the only other game to get this many episodes devoted to it on the show so far. And that hasn't even come out yet. <laughs> so, why don't you tell us all, well, yeah, I guess I'm included in that. Why don't you tell us all, like, you know, a little more about, like, your time with the game and stuff, you know, your your experience, like, finding out about it and then playing it and stuff. So, uh, I remember pretty vividly, actually. I was a big fan of the Bravely Default games, and uh, so in our Discord group, it was well known that I was a big fan of those games. And they were watching E3 and were in a conference call for it. I wasn't in it because I don't really care for those things. But as soon as I heard something was being by the guys who made Bravely Default, when I heard that they were making another game, as soon as that was on the stream, I just barged into the call and shouted, Did, Did someone, someone say Bravely Default? And the rest is history. It eventually came out, and I liked it better than those games. Cool. Not for the not for the same reasons, which I might get to. I remember finding out about it, and I thought they called it Octopath Traveler because you could walk in eight directions with your character, and I thought that is not a revolutionary <laughs> mechanic. No, it's not. It, it's not even accurate because I tried it in the game. And... <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of perfect, actually. You should be able to walk in eight directions. This, this is a fraud. <laughs> so wait. You have, like, free roam, don't you? It's not four directions. Uh, uh, I, I guess it's kind of... <laughs> you have, like, full control stick. 360, 360 degrees traveler. 360 traveler, perfect. And I thought the game looked kind of interesting, but it didn't really do much for me other than look kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. I, I was pretty much immediately smitten. Just, like, I love the old... 90s RPG aesthetic and seeing that come back but be pretty is just a dream. Yeah, I like 90s RPGs too, but for some reason I just wasn't sold right away, I think. Yeah, I don't even remember how I got on board with this game. 
Like I, I legitimately, there's like a blank spot in my memory is like, don't care about this game. Hey, I really want to play this game. Like I don't, I don't know where it happened. But probably has to do with that demo that I played. Possibly the demo was pretty good. There were the two demos. There was, there was the mm-hmm. one that was restricted to Old Brick and Primrose, and then there was the demo that's just long enough to beat someone's first chapter. That I played the latter one. Okay. I only played the first one, but I played the rest of the game, so I think we're square there. I, I, I think I recorded that first episode like almost like immediately after finishing like Tressa's first chapter in the demo. I was like, okay, I gotta talk about this game. So, you've been talking to me and some of our mutual acquaintances about you know what you liked about the game, and you know we've we've all been kind of doing that. And I think we're both in agreement that the selling point for the game is the the tales of the eight different characters. Very much so. Uh, it's definitely a narratively focused game. It being by the Bravely Default guys, I was really looking forward to something I would more like for the gameplay. And while that was fine, it kind of fell below my expectations, but I just loved it for the different stories and all the diversity going on there. Yeah, yeah, I I really liked seeing where all the different stories would go. I think I had fewer problems with the gameplay than you and some of our other friends did, because uh, I, I don't know if you people listening to this are aware of this, but I'm actually a fake gamer. I'm not really that good <laughs> at games. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I am a bit of an RPG buff, not a major one, but when it comes to the gameplay for them, I pretty consistently complain that it's too easy, and Octopath is kind of the same. Yeah. Very fun battle system, tons of complexity and just flexibility available to the player, but it's just never hard enough to make you use it. Do you have any, like, stray thoughts about, like, the characters and their stories and stuff? Because I kind of talked about them as I went through them, and I've I've kind of evolved some of my opinions on them since the last episode, and I know you've had a lot to say about it in the past, so I just kind of want to open the floor to that. Okay, I don't know if I really have many stray thoughts. I always figured oh. we would just kind of run everything down. Well, that's that that's kind of what I meant. Okay. I, I should I should be precise with my language. Okay, so uh, given the whole order of the octopath letters, uh, I think it is most fitting to spite them and start with Ulbrich, the real O. <laughs> and Ulbrich's story is just a lot of fun. It's just a hammy adventure with a super manly hero, and the final boss is riding a black horse indoors. What I knew you were going to talk about that. I, of, of, of course I was going to talk about that. <laughs> like, you're talking to him indoors, in his office, he doesn't have a horse, fight suddenly starts, he's on a horse, that is the cheesiest garbage, I eat that up. Yeah, I think I've played just enough Fire Emblem games that it didn't even occur to me until you started talking about it <laughs> afterwards. Fire Emblem characters are shown riding a horse in the overworld. They don't just suddenly start fighting and have a horse. I, I know, but I just, I just kind of, my brain just kind of turned off for that, but Ulbrich's story! Back yeah, to... The, the... Okay, okay, I'll, I'll stop talking about the horse. Um, We're all worried about you. This is this is actually an intervention no. all along. Okay. okay, I understand. I need it. But... But, let's see, it's just like... 
I, I consider Ulbrich mostly corny fun. Like, I think the horse thing is totally in line with the tone for it. Like, the guy's having a fantasy midlife crisis, of all things. Yeah, I, I saw someone on one of the Reddits describe it like that, and that just kind of... That's just, exactly what it is. <laughs> it just makes me picture Ulbrich just buying, like, a sports car or something. Yes. Like, it's pretty much the perfect description for it. He just was really manly and appreciated in his younger days, and then he failed and lost everything, and he's trying to find what to do with the rest of his life. It is literally a midlife crisis in a fantasy setting. <laughs> I, I, think, I think that description just kind of bumped up his story to, like, the top half for me. Exactly, that's what it did for me, too. Except he's, like, number five, because the other four are my babies. But <laughs> So there's the theme of him, like finding the purpose of his, like, why he wields his blade and all that, and so you really just get a lot of cheesy one-liners out of him. Like, I know in his first chapter, someone calls him a hero or something, and he says, I am not a hero, just a man with a sword. And it's just... It was a very solid snake thing to say. Very, very solid snake, very corny, very campy. Just takes itself really seriously when it's still kind of silly and just ends up being a whole lot of fun. Do you think part of the silliness comes from the the 90s style sprites? Uh, a little bit, yeah. Um, actually a lot, yeah. Because they don't look like people, they look like these little pretty sprite work people. These little bitty toy soldiers. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so... I don't know, you're not directly getting a lot of empathy like you would with something that has, like, higher quality cutscenes where you see everyone's expressions. It's more going back to kind of a nostalgic feeling, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> and I think Ulbricht's story, more than most of the others, kind of harkens back to just this childhood feeling of enjoying a story for fun. I wouldn't be surprised if that was one of the things they were trying to go for. And they kind of touch on that in a lot of other ways, just appealing to that nostalgia. But I think I'll dwell on that later. Okay. The next character would be Cyrus, in that order. Yes, of course. Uh, Cyrus is also a lot of fun, although he's a lot more directly funny than Ulbrich. Um, yeah, it's it's a lot more... They wanted him to be funny, rather than jaded people on the internet find ironic enjoyment. Oh, oh no, I they wanted Ulbrich to be exactly what he was. They totally succeeded there, I think. That's not ironic enjoyment. I, I don't I don't know. I I can't tell. I'm not I don't know. I'm a lot more literal minded than other people, I, so maybe I, I missed uh, it. So I hate to bring up the horse again, but that was not an accident, buddy. <laughs> well, you don't <laughs> it was, it was not an accident. I mean, just they the fact... They were purposely making it silly. I didn't even notice it when I played it, so I, I thought... You know? The, I think the developers put a lot of care and attention into the product they were making. Oh, That was yeah. not an accident. Well, yeah, I'm not, I'm not right. saying it was, like, the okay. room or anything. Okay. Alright. But back to but, Cyrus. Okay, good old Cyrus. So, Cyrus actually does have a pretty similar appeal in that... He's doing something that's really silly, but it's being taken really seriously. I like 
our friend Austin said that he'd do the Jekyll Jekyll Hyde dance from Arthur. Yes, yes, he would. Pretty much the settling point you give for Cyrus is that everyone else is going on these grand quests for some really important reason, and he's hunting down a missing library book. (laughs) And it's just as important to him as everything else is to the others, but it just has this really silly air to it because he's not really doing anything that important until suddenly he is. Yeah, he's just kind of this disgraced teacher who's just, (laughs) now you're with this priest and this disgraced warrior and all these other people. Yes. And so what I really like about that is that it's not only funny, but it's also just kind of weirdly admirable. Like, he's just so passionate about teaching and knowledge and just passing that on to everyone else that I just kind of have to respect his really absurd behavior. Yeah, I I can agree with that. It was... I, I don't think... Okay, just, just to get this out of the way, there's gonna be spoiler talk. This is like the fourth okay. or fifth episode about the game. Okay, okay, good. I was gonna go into spoiler talk. Okay, so just, just from here on out... Just... I guess we spoiled the fact that Ulbricht's final boss has a horse. Oh, well. He's riding a horse. Indoors. But, yeah, Cyrus's final speech to his final boss, I think that was the moment where I I went from really liking Cyrus to, like, really admiring him as a character. Yeah, I was gonna say the same thing, for sure. And I think I told you this once, but that was at kind of a moment where I was having a little bit of a of a personal slump, nothing really dramatic or anything, but just hearing that just kind of gave me the motivation to address it in real life. And and then what I got out of it was actually very eerily similar to stuff Cyrus was saying, so mm-hmm. I feel like there's that, even if my life doesn't go in that direction because of that, which, which it sounds really dramatic when I phrase it like that, <laughs> but... No matter what happens, I feel like there's a, a bit of a, a bit of a connection between me and the character that won't go away now. Oh yeah, and I do think, like thematically, Cyrus's story is—I don't really want to say strongest, but just very sturdy. Like the villain of his story actually had a disciple that they were supposed to teach, but decided that they were worthless, and so just kind of sacrificed them. And so Cyrus doesn't just say that's evil, he says, no, you should have taught him so that he could be better and actually be useful to it. I don't want to work with someone like you because you disagree with my philosophy on teaching. Yeah, they they make sure that Cyrus is very thorough and consistent with his ideology there. And that's a really unique theme, all things considered. You don't really see many stories that are about the value of passing knowledge on to other people. You have your... Well, let's see, who do I want to throw under the bus? Like, Ophelia's story is about familial love. That's pretty common, but you don't get much like Cyrus. Yeah, yeah, and I think because you don't see it as much, it's more likely to stick in your memory. Mm -hmm. It's something I can definitely appreciate, at least. I do like how his story goes from 0 to 60, though. Oh, goodness, yes. So, the way I played the game, Cyrus was the last character I met, and mm-hmm. his I, the, the game was getting a little bit dark with everyone's first chapters. We've got, like, a sick baby, we've got prostitutes, 
We've mm-hmm. got, you know, the fire monsters and dying dads. Now we've got a library book. Yes. And then I did Tressa's second chapter first. <laughs> and it's in the same town as Cyrus's second chapter, so I just did his chapter right after. And I was like, oh, oh okay, this is <laughs> happening now. Alright, so I thought the tonal whiplash was really funny. I just wasn't a big fan of it, because I thought it was funnier when the tone was light. Like, the thing with Therese, where he mistakes her devotion to him as her being devoted to her studies, that's an incredible joke, and then it's never quite that funny again, because it's just being kind of darkly serious. Yeah, the the rest of Cyrus's humor goes to his uh, little banter scenes. And the opening narration. Like, woe is me to never realize the extent of my charisma. Oh, yes. He, he he himself is very funny. And there's one narration on one of his chapters says, like, something about how his situation was a mystery wrapped in an enigma. I wonder if that was on purpose again. Oh, yes. Yes, it was. The writers <laughs> absolutely knew that they were making something ridiculous, and they just kind of went to town on it. I I didn't get how dark his chapter was until I heard people talking about it after, and I thought, well, yeah, I guess it was pretty dark, because it it, it was like something out of an episode of Full Metal Alchemist, and I'm a big fan of that show, so I'm just kind of used to it. But then Mm -hmm. I look back and I compare that to Cyrus's first chapter, and I think, oh, yeah, that was kind of weird. Oh, yeah, and I think that chapter has one of the highest body counts, if not the highest, so there's that. Yeah, I was like, Cyrus, come on! (laughs) All over a missing library book. I forgot, I think the next one, logically, is Tressa. So we have to do Therion. Okay. He was your main, if I recall correctly. He was my main, which means that I was one of the only people on this earth that was not enraged by the purple chests. Yeah. Otherwise, I kind of wish that I picked someone else as my main, because I have just kind of... His story was alright. Uh, yeah, I, th- I thought he had one of the more interesting of the first chapters. His first chapter is definitely one of the best. It has a really good hook. Like, we talked about Cyrus's thing being really silly, but even Therian's reasoning is basically that someone just drew an L on his forehead and told him they'd only erase it if he did their work for them. And then after he finished, they said, hey now, you're an all-star. Yes. Yes. And so I think most of my favorite things about Therion's story stem from that hook, where he has just... What what do they call it again? The Fool's Bangle. Yeah, the Fool's Bangle. So he has the Fool's Bangle, which is basically just a sign that he failed once, and he has to do their work for him. So he's really entirely motivated by his pride. Yeah, I think that's a neat way to go about it. Kind of a good way to have him be an anti-hero in that sense. But also have him be a little bit admirable, because at least he does have his pride. It's one of the instances where pride does kind of shoot him in the foot, but it's also a redeeming quality at the same time. I like, you know, the kind of complexity that comes from that. And so then they kind of play with it with the reveal at the end that after, I think, his second chapter, they actually unlocked the bangle, and he just pretended not to notice. Yeah. So... He's prideful enough not to want the bangle, but he's also so prideful that he wants to earn it being off. 
And so that's something I think is pretty interesting for such... Like, he's kind of a villainous character, but in that sense, he's really not. He's very honest. He has some nobility to him. Aside from being a gigantic tsundere, because he never actually told them and pretended not to notice. I will say, though, I I actually really liked his second chapter. I kind of have a weak spot for the edgy loner guy has to put up with annoying people around him cliche. And that's what that oh, yeah. chapter came across to me. Yeah, Therian's writing in general is really on point. I love me a good snarky edgelord, and he absolutely delivers there. Also, I just I just want to give a shout-out to the fact that his second boss is named Orlick. It's just, of all the fictional RPG names I've heard, it's just Orlick. That's pretty good. I can dig that. It's silly. Not as silly as a different... Well, no, no, it is sillier than a different boss's name, but eh. Mm-hmm. Where I think his story fails, though, is just in the general theme of trust that it has. It doesn't feel like Therian really had any reason to develop. He just did because it's a story and that's what he's supposed to do. Well, I think you're supposed to kind of, you know, use your imagination and, you know, read into the party banters and think that he's getting closer to the other travelers. Perhaps, but this is also the same story where you waltz in with a band of four guys and they say you were a fool to come here alone. Yeah, I notice you keep going back to that and... Mo- not- it's, it's a pretty frequent criticism. That line gets absolutely just like hammered by people. Oh yeah, and you're not wrong, but I just kind of interpret it as, you know, just you and the three people in the party with you, like... Like, you guys are alone. You don't have, you know, the authorities with you or anything. That's just how I heard it when I tried to justify it. I guess that kind of makes sense, but it's still just written a little inconveniently. Uh, A little, but I I think, you know, it's it's one of those things where you kind of have to use your imagination to fill in the blanks. Mm -hmm. I just don't think there's quite enough to justify him giving his villain a speech about trust at the end. He's just too much of a broody guy for me to really buy into that. Mm. I thought it was alright, but I've had I've had similar complaints about similar moments in other works, so I, I can I can understand where you're coming from with that. I still liked it well enough. It's just that when the others are so good, it just falls a little short compared to them. I kind of like how simple his final boss is. It, it's the guy who screwed him over all that time ago. It's just kind of... Yeah, it's just straightforward to the point. Yeah, it's that guy. Go go fight him. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's that guy. It's just simple. I like that. Yeah, fair enough. I can respect that. Because, you know, everyone else, they have to have the twist villain or the guy who <laughs> came out of nowhere. He just gets... Yeah, you know who he is. Go after him. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, beat him up. Your revenge. Like the day man said, you know what it is. Like, it's about trust, but then it's, at the end, you end up beating up the guy who betrayed you before? That's a little iffy. Well, I mean, he was a crime lord, he had to... Yeah, like, he he was a crime lord, he was a bad guy. But, like, I guess I feel like if it was about trust, then Therian would win by trusting someone. When he really just kind of well, does I mean, it on his own while the party helps. Well, I mean, it's like I said, I figured he'd trust the party yeah. because... So you gotta fill in the blanks there. Yeah, and that, that that's kind of a hit or miss philosophy, I understand. It's basically just a story that 
is well told and definitely has its strong points, but is probably suffers the most from the game's structure. Yeah. Where everything is just so spread apart. Yeah, especially with the idea that up to seven other characters decide to rob a mansion with him in the first chapter. Oh, I, I love that. I never noticed because I picked Therian as my main, but I love that. Yeah. I've, I've seen some interesting workarounds in the world of fan fiction where they try to justify everything like that. I, I, I would love anything that justifies Alf and robbing a mansion. So, anything left with Therion? No, and speaking of Alfin, I think it's time to move on to Ophelia. Yes. That is not how segues work, but she is the next in the spelling. Technically, because we're, we're very contrarian spelling here. For a while, I was convinced she was your favorite before I knew who it actually was. How, how do I say this without like outing myself as a complete loser? I guess I already have. She is just freaking adorable. Like... Goodness gracious. But, no, she's only, like, my second favorite, maybe third, depending on the day. Th this guy, he just throws at a dartboard to determine who his second favorite is. Mm, no, it, it's it's pretty consistently uh, Alphen on top, and then Ophelia, but then the rest... Spoilers! Now I, we know it's Alphen! If, if, if it's not Alphen, I would be wrong, and I can't have that. Uh, let's see... So I guess the first thing that always comes to mind for me on Ophelia is that people really hate her second chapter. But I, I liked it. Oh, I, th I, thought, I thought it was fine. I didn't have any Yeah, you thought it was fine, too. Um, people generally complain that it's boring, which is fair. Like, you aren't really doing a whole lot that's important. You're just helping a few children get over an argument. Yeah, I, I, I get that. Kids are a very touchy subject in you know, stories like this, because they have very little to do before they lose audience sympathy. Right. And so what I think works for Ophelia is that it just ties in the theme of just losing someone in your life and feeling that grief, but still managing to recover from that. And I think that the way that Ophelia's story carries that theme throughout everything is what really makes it one of the strongest. Yeah, it does tie back into... You know, some of her central motifs a bit. Mm -hmm. um, namely, it ties into her backstory, it shows up in her chapter 2, and it's also exactly the problem she deals with Liana later on in the story. And so I like that continuity, and also, like I felt with Cyrus, it's just something I can really admire. Like, a lot of the time, a character will have some tragic backstory, like such as being an orphan, like Ophelia is, and then that'll justify them just being a jerk to everyone. Whereas here we have a character who had that happen, but then had a surrogate family come in and just ended up being the most precious angel you've ever seen. Except, arguably, Tressa. Mm. I don't know. And so that's something I find really interesting and also just kind of does my heart good. Like, I just like seeing her be nice to people. Oh, yeah. It is good to show that, you know, adopted families can be just as happy and loving as blood families. Mm -hmm. There's a bit of a cultural dissonance because, uh, okay, everyone everyone rails on Ophelia for calling her adoptive father Your Excellency, and the idea is that she doesn't really see herself as a member of the family, she just 
thinks that they were really gracious to her. And I, I read that that's, you know, a little more of a common opinion to have in Japanese culture. So mm-hmm. it didn't translate very well. Yeah, we, we get a taste of that and we're like, wait, what? I just kind of figured she was just really humble when I when I first mm-hmm. played it. Which is also true, really. Yeah. Her ending is probably one of the highlights of all the Chapter 4s for me, and I know it's this for you, too. Oh, yes. And it kind of makes me wish that I ended with her chapter. I think if I played the game again, I would probably start with her and end with her, because mm-hmm. I... I, f- I feel like I always have to end with the one I start with, otherwise it's right. madness. And that's the that's the way to do it, really. Like I cleared out Therian early and regretted it. Because <laughs> it's just like the credits play, and it's like, well, six more to go. <laughs> yeah, Ophelia's ending is just, again, really freaking cute. Yeah. Part of it is just the little gameplay integration where you guide Liana back up to the mountain. Whenever they incorporate the path actions like that, it's always really neat, but that was probably oh, yeah. that was probably the most touching of them. Yeah, that's my favorite of the three times it happens, although I like all three. Um let's see. Well just well, now I'm flashing back to Cyrus using his scrutinize. Oh actually actually it happens four times, I forgot. I forgot Cyrus does it. Oh well. Uh, it also happens on Ulbrick and Altham. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. But now I'm I'm flashing back to Cyrus, and he's, he's just, like, questioning a book, like, where were you yes. last night? And yes. It says nothing. You would do it. You yeah. would do it. Let's see. But what I like about Ophelia's ending is that it just gets back to that thematic continuity I was talking about, where it's like Ophelia and her backstory, she was being all depressed and sad over her family dying, and so Liana took her up to the hill, and they were just adorable, and everyone was happy again. And then at the end, they just kind of reversed that role, and I just find that narratively satisfying. Yeah, the, the good deed came around. Mm-hmm. And also, they're just... I love the writing there. Like They just seem really close and, like, tease each other and make stupid jokes and then talk about how stupid the jokes were, and it just does my heart good. Yeah, they have like nicknames for each other, which is always a neat writing trick whenever you have to demonstrate that two characters are really familiar with each other like that. Because mm-hmm. I know, you know, Alfin, he has that friend of his who always just calls him Alf, and then hmm. whenever I hear that, I just start thinking of our friend Alf. Yes. Our good buddy Alf. Let's see, surprisingly I don't actually have a whole lot else to say about Ophelia, just because what I like is just pretty upfront. Just the thematic Mm -hmm. continuity, and the cute, and the nice. Alright. Next up would be Primrose, then. And then Primrose, who is just, like, actually complicated. Good. Someone called it Kill Bill. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it is. So what I like about Primrose's story is that it is cliche as all get out, and then kind of just isn't as a twist. At least, the, that's the feeling I get from it. Yeah, I notice you kind of differ from a lot of people's takeaway from the ending. Even mine a little bit. But... Mm-hmm. Right. A lot of people think that like Primrose is sad at the end of it, and I just completely disagree with that take i don't think she's sad i just think you know she's up front i don't feel better 
you know, mm-hmm. that, that that's about it. It's like, I don't feel better. Like, that's not Fair. saying I feel like garbage, it's just... And she doesn't. Um, you're trash. That's, that's fair. By defeating the three men with the crow tattoos, which is the most cliche thing I've ever heard, by the way. I've never that heard gives... of that before. The, the three men with the crow tattoos? I've, I've never heard of that literary device. It's not a literary device. It's, like, the literal people she's killing. She's hunting down people with crow tattoos. I've never heard of people with crow tattoos before. I, her, the villains of her story literally have tattoos of crows on them. I've, what do you want from me? You're saying it's cliche, but, like, I can't think of any other no. story where there are crow tattoo uh, guys. No, no, no. It, the cliche isn't them having crow tattoos. It's more just, like, the idea that she's hunting down three guys who killed her dad. Oh, okay. Who, who, who have the tattoo... Of an animal that is commonly associated with death and murder. I well, okay, well, uh, emblazoned onto their skin. I've I've not heard of that, but you know what? Uh, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not the most well-read person. You don't know that crows are so like. Well, no, 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 no. no, no. I've, I've heard of the crows. I just haven't heard of the tattoo cliche. Uh, tattoos aren't really a cliche. Um, like there's the general societal perception of them being like punk sort of deal, but. Not really what Octopath is going for. I feel like we're getting sidetracked. Yeah, but it's fun. Um, <laughs> when you hear that there's three guys with tattoos of crows, it's just like, okay, I don't need to hear anything more. They're evil. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and so it just sets up this gritty revenge story. And when you meet them, they are evil. Oh, they are super evil. One of them is kind of less evil than the other two, but they're all still pretty evil. <laughs> they're they're all pretty evil. And so, with it being such a gritty revenge story, you think, well, okay, how does a gritty revenge story end? And it's generally always, I think, one of three ways. One, the protagonist fails and dies, because revenge is bad. Uh, two, the protagonist changes their mind and decides not to get revenge, because revenge is bad. Um, and I'm blanking on the third one. But the message of that was also that revenge is bad. Oh, they get revenge and oh, it doesn't help. Yeah, they they get revenge and then they feel bad about it and they're lost and empty because revenge is bad. Mm. And so Primrose kind of takes Route 3, but the message of Primrose's story isn't that revenge is bad. It's that if you're truly dedicated to whatever it is you're doing, you can manage to pull yourself through anything. And she does. That's more of a lesson about perseverance than revenge. I think the revenge is more of just a skeleton for it. Probably. Main thing that makes me say this is the whole faith will be my shield thing that she says. Yeah. It's like her motto, and it's what guides her through everything she does. So I consider that to be the theme more than anything about revenge. Probably. It might have been like a, a bit of a misemphasis. You know, they emphasized revenge instead of, you know, perseverance mm-hmm. and faith a little more, and that kind of altered how Possibly. people see it. The fact that most people don't get the same impression of it that I did makes me think that. It probably mm. doesn't also help that that entire aspect of her character is only introduced in her second chapter. Mm-hmm. It's not really touched on in her first chapter, and that's... that's true. That's where the first impressions are made, so... Mm-hmm. Especially with that one demo, so... Mm-hmm. What also makes me think this is her villain, uh, Simeon, also known as the Monkey. 
It's pronounced um, exactly like the word for monkey. I, it, y- yes, it is. I know. I understand. Th- that's my version of the horse guy. <laughs> <laughs> and so he just has this huge flair for the dramatic, and he sees Primrose's ridiculously cliche revenge story, and he wants it to turn out like a ridiculously cliche revenge story. That being either she kills him and feels bad about it, she fails and dies, or she can't bring herself to kill him. All of those would be really cliche endings, and so him wanting it to just be a cliche story, he would win if any of those three things happen. So the fact that she wins and then is able to move on just kind of lets her defeat him in that thematic sense. And that's something I really find interesting about it. Yeah. I think another thing that just kind of messes with the cliche aspect is the fact that he's kind of a weirdo. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, he's, he's he's totally enjoying messing with her in particular. Oh, yeah. On top, of all, on top of all his clan business. Mm-hmm. Like, he was just going on about how much he wanted to see, like, the despair on her face, and I just I just got Danganronpa flashbacks. Mm-hmm. Well, I, he considers himself the writer of the story. Are you nice to the characters that you write for? <laughs> well, they, what, what if we read the credits of the game? He's actually listed as like one of the like scenario writers or something. Oh, th- that that would be brilliant. That that would just be brilliant. But Primrose's story isn't important enough to merit that. <laughs> Maybe if you did like the K rule credits, <laughs> I, I, I would be. A fan you know of what? That. You even have that fake out fight with him. What if they just did oh, that? <laughs> that would be perfect, actually. That would make the game an eleven out of ten. Uh, okay, someone mod the game, make it happen. Oh yeah, get the monkey credits. Yes. Oh god, it, he even as a monkey, it's just like Donkey Kong. We, the joke was just right in front of us all along. Anything left to say about Primrose's story? No. Uh, like, whenever I finish my uh, cliche shtick, I pretty much run out of things to say about Primrose. <laughs> Just good. Uh, the second boss looked a lot like the Fuhrer in Full Metal Alchemist. Okay, that's all. Okay. Okay, there we go. Okay, I think you've been waiting for this. Okay, and then we have my son, Alfin. Hey everyone, future Alex here, and while we were recording this episode, I noticed that this one was going on pretty long. The entire discussion ended up going for approximately an hour and a half. So, out of respect for your time, I decided it might be the responsible thing to do if I split this discussion up into two extra-long episodes instead of one mega-long episode, because I don't want to have a monopoly on your time here. I figure you've got some things you might want to do, so we're gonna let you go for now, and next week you can come back and listen to whatever Philip has to say about Alfin, Tressa, and Hanit, and anything else that we haven't gotten around to mentioning yet. And next week's episode will actually be slightly longer than this one by a few minutes, so you can look forward to that if you feel a little bad about being cliffhung here. I understand that feeling, but again, I didn't want to just keep you here forever and a half just because we're talking about a game for a little while. We'll see you back here next week, and if I'm correct, 
the second half of this discussion will be the final bitcast of 2018. I've been doing this for all of 2018, and I'm looking forward to doing more. So, if you want to stay subscribed to the bitcast on Podcast One's website or mobile app, well, you know where to go for that. You can also find the show on iTunes, and while it might not be big right now, the BitCast does have a Facebook page now, and I post on it every day. You know, same name, same logo for the show that I use here, so you'll know it when you see it. And with that, I'll see you on the next one, and I'm sure Philip will too. Listen to BitCast anytime on podcastone.com and on the Podcast One app.